the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And you know what? We're just going to jump right in because we have a long, complex story of Ted Bundy to finish. And we're going to get to it, but first we have to get into our holiday. Happy National Escape Day. And I love it when our holiday matches up perfectly with what we're going to be talking about. Mm -hmm. This is National Escape Day, meaning you got to get away from the winter blues and you want to go on a holiday or just escape in the mind and take yourself to some tropical island in your head. But this is not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about a guy that actually escapes not one time, but twice and probably could have gotten away, but he decides that he has to kill again. And that's what we're going to go over. Right. And we're going to recap a little bit about what we covered in part one of our trilogy, our Ted Bundy trilogy. So we covered Bundy, his impact on society, obviously, and then his crimes that occurred in Washington. And as he was moving to Utah is when we stopped because we were already at an hour. So now we're going to pick back up and shed light on his reign of terror as he moved through the states. So when we left off, it was right after his composite was released to the media. Mm-hmm. And four people he knew recognized him and called the police saying, hey, this looks like my friend Ted, or this looks like my boyfriend Ted, or this looks like the guy Ted who I worked at the hotline with. This looks like this guy at the University of Washington. Four people. And for some reason, he just was not taken seriously as a suspect because he was a clean-cut law student. Yep. Yeah, the fact that four separate people who didn't know each other called up and said we know this guy and they went and said it 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 reminds me of the manson killings when they had two killings in the same time period you know one after another and said no there's no link between them because these the victims wouldn't have known each other and we have we know that this was a drug killing and this was a random killing this is ridiculous and shame on the cops for this one this is also the point where he was introducing himself as ted yeah (laughs) Yeah. like a ted that matches the composite sketch with the same weird bug but who knows? It's like maybe that was reported to one jurisdiction and they got the yeah, Ted detail. It wasn't like know. they were getting bulletins over email with new new updates. It was archaic. It I was can't even 70s. imagine how they solved anything back in the day. To no. It, I mean, and this is one of those things, at least also to, to go back to the Golden State Killer, like one of the biggest problems they were having was communication yeah. between law enforcement agencies because you'd have to literally send memos in the mail. Yeah. yeah. To, to share like information. Carrier pigeon. Yeah, it was a huge challenge. And if you had, you couldn't deliver updates in real time. Yeah. And it was like all hearsay. Like, and you couldn't record a vict- uh, an interviewee telling you that. Like, it was scribbled on a notepad and then transferred to a police report where someone was typing it. There was so much human error mm-hmm. that even if it was uh, reported properly, human error was playing a huge role in all of this. Right. Yeah. But the one thing that it does do is that. The sketch is out there now, the idea that he's driving around a Volkswagen bug. So as brazen as he was with this and that he 100% should have been caught, he goes, he skips town. He's like, this is too hot now. I'm going to go. And he goes to Utah. So when Bundy is accepted to the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, a new string of homicides began to emerge. He raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker 
Idaho, and then either dispose of the remains immediately in a nearby river or return the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. On October 2nd, he seized 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City, and dragged her into a wooded area, intending to, quote, de-escalate his pathological urges, he claimed, by raping and then releasing her. But he ended up strangling her accidentally, he said, in the process of trying to silence her screams. But, like, good... a for effort. Yeah, he was trying to reform himself. He cannot. By just raping. Being in Utah. No, he's, yeah. he's a sick... He cannot... Oh, I wonder how he... Because, you know, he was drunk for most of these crimes. I wonder how he was getting his fix on. It's hard to drink get in drunk in Utah. It is. Yeah. Especially on yeah, a Sunday. That's, that's a, good, that's a good, good point. Stocking up in advance preparation. Following those killings, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator... Uh, Carol Durant, and she was actually at a Walden Books, which was a bookstore in the mall back then. And he identifies himself as Officer Roseland back in the 1800s. Back in the 1800s. Got it. And tells her that someone attempted to break into your car, and can you come with me to the station to file a complaint? And, you know, she's 18 years old. She's freaking out. Somebody broke into my car. This guy seems like a police officer. I'm going to follow him. Goes into this car. She points out to Bundy while they're driving on a road that did not lead to the police station that, you know, what are you doing? He immediately pulls over to the shoulder and he attempts to handcuff her. And she actually fights and she's struggling. And he inadvertently puts the handcuffs on the same wrist. And that enables Durant to actually open the car door and escape. And this is huge because she's the hero of this story mm-hmm. because she's the one that can positively identify him. So, But later that same evening, 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent disappeared after leaving a theater production at her school to pick up her brother. The school's drama teacher and a student told police that a stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing in the rear of the auditorium, and the drama teacher spotted him again shortly before the end of the play. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Carol Durant's wrists. So clearly the man who had tried to abduct Carol was the person who abducted Deborah. By 1975, Bundy was killing in Colorado, Utah, and Idaho, and kind of ping-ponging all around these states <sighs> to do his evil work. And women were being found murdered and Women were disappearing all across these states, and law enforcement officers were trying to make the connections and communicate best they could. But as we've said, there were so many limitations they were facing at this time. And due to his varying MOs, I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not this was the same person, especially given the fact that they weren't finding all the bodies. So they couldn't confirm in each case that somebody had been murdered and couldn't analyze and compare the circumstances under which they were murdered to confirm that they were looking for one suspect. Right. Another thing that was going on at this point was that Bundy's girlfriend, Elizabeth Cloffer, had called the police multiple times to report suspicions that her boyfriend, Ted, could be involved in these horrible cases. And she was interviewed at length every time she talked to them. And for me, the mind truly boggles in that the fact that she thinks her boyfriend could be capable, you know, she obviously saw this composite. She called. Yeah. The first time. And she's like, this could be Ted. You know, the timing lines up. This could be my boyfriend. And she's still dating him. This is insane. It's, it's, conf- you know what? Insane. It's, it's, it's a, 
tough dichotomy because she probably loves him and she probably thinks she's crazy. Yeah. She's well, probably doubting that her instincts. Be? Yes. She's probably having this gut instinct that it is him, but she feels crazy and she feels like she's betraying him and she feels it couldn't be him. This is I'm a bad person for calling him in. Like he's that manipulative. Yeah, also coming from like a good psychopath like that that is probably convincing her that he's this good stand-up guy. Like that is hard. It's literally unfathomable on her Totally. On her side. Totally. And she called them a second time when she read that a young that young women were now disappearing in town surrounding Salt Lake City because this is where Ted was now living. And <laughs> you know, and she's she's calling a second time, a third yeah. time, and this is like you said, Jack, my boyfriend is named Ted. And but this is in Washington. Yeah. That he introduced himself as Ted at the lake. So maybe the Utah police didn't get that memo. It didn't know the guy's name com- was Ted. Exactly. Yeah. Or, so it's completely reasonable that that happened, that yeah. they just didn't get that well, little piece of information. Yeah. And it's easy to look in like retrospect, us looking at this whole thing with all this information. It's so obvious. Yeah. It's like, obviously it's him. Hello. Totally. But like living in the moment when there is so much human error, I'm sure it was a lot harder than right. we're frustratingly like talking about it. Yes. But by now... With this, with these second, third calls by Elizabeth, he had risen considerably in the hierarchy of suspicion. And, but the the huge problem here is the witness who saw Ted Bundy during his lake lake abduction, the double murder with the two victims at the same time. They put Ted in a lineup, and the witness who was there did not pick him out correctly in this lineup. She picked a different guy. So, oh, yes. Shit. Do so, they still do police lineups? Yes, they do. They do. Yep. Yeah. yep. But witness uh, lineups are not reputable. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Well, a lot of times they'll take four guys. I mean, I've some, seen some pretty bad lineups where they'll take four guys, look nothing like the guy, and then, then the one guy. But no. Know, really? But, yeah. So this is where we have to have some compassion for law enforcement because Ted was on their radar. And this lake witness was supposed to be the most reputable. And who got the best look at him, she rejected going to help him. Right. So if she didn't recognize him, that's what do they have to go on besides that? Yeah. And they didn't have any like actual evidence again against him, like physical evidence, right? They had the, they had Carol Durant who escaped. Right. So they have him on kidnapping. Right. But they didn't have her, that, that was in a different state. So she didn't see him in a lineup. Yeah. So, but she does eventually. Right. But anyways, okay. So this is the problems that the, that the police forces are facing is all I'm trying to get at where it's like they, they got him. Okay. Pick him out, dude. We're, we're waiting for a reason to, to arrest him. We just need a little bit of evidence. And he wasn't picked out of a lineup. So they moved on. So a month later, Elizabeth called the Salt Lake city, uh, County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions again. And his name was finally added to the list of suspects, but at the time, there's no cred- credible evidence linking him to the Utah crimes. A month later, Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams. He's still taking exams. <laughs> this is all, this seems like it'd be years with how many people have gone missing, but it's really a small period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just can't believe he's like actually studying. He's probably not studying. Probably not even but really doing. Like, this is what he said he was doing. Go on. Yeah. Though. Okay. Whatever. He's, he goes after he takes his exams and he spent a week with Elizabeth who didn't tell him that she had reported him to police on three separate occasions. But how can you be? Could you imagine being alone? She's the most fascinating character in this story. Being because, alone with somebody you think is a, a serial murderer. No, she's the most fascinating character because she continues to date him. Yeah. 
She must really love him. Mm-hmm. So or she, not, because she's reporting him. Yeah. So I don't know. She's uh, it's very, very confusing it's character. very conflicting. Right. So she ended up making plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. But Bundy subsequently spent a week in Seattle with her in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. And again, she made no mention of her multiple discussions with the police and Salt Lake City's county sheriff's office. You know, she's really toying with some dangerous shit because it's like this is a dangerous guy and she's sneaking around telling the police stuff about him but then talking marriage with him and my question is it's like is she on the police's side and just keeping him around to try At to arm's length just to just try to, to like just report information like hey actually ted didn't call me this day where this woman went missing um he did call me this i don't know or or is she really wanting to believe it's not true and like really considering this marriage, I the feel like there's Christmas. probably like a gut. I mean, it's like, listen, we have gut instincts. They're usually right. I'm sure she had a gut instinct that it might have been him or he had something to do with it. But then, you know, we ignore our own red flags sometimes when we're dating people. So it might have been something like that, but like to the nth degree. So, Jack, have you ever had a red flag like that? Like Bundy's? Yeah. I mean, I dated a full-on sociopath for a year and a half that had many Bundy-like qualities, but, you know. What were the, whole... fir- what were the red flags that you saw? I don't want to go too far into it. But I, I d- dated a guy who had a lot of dark... You know, my ex, who you really got along with, who we did our song with? Yeah. He had red flags, even though he's not a psycho. So I mean, there's a lot of red flags. He was into but- a lot of dark shit. Yeah. And... But he's not dangerous. Yeah. So it's like red flags, they could mean something I or mean, nothing. I mean, you can be a... A loser. That's a red flag. Right. You're not a psychopath. Right. But like this guy was in like knives and like murder stuff. Billy likes the owl poem. Yeah. Well, we already know he's. Right, first of all, I don't like the owl poem. Yes, he's you just, do. No, I don't like. You the stuck owl up poem. for the. You stuck up for it. You said this is normal if you're no, no, no. brooding. You would. Guy. You I would fight to the death for the owl. That poem. is not true. I said I. I you said, love owls. <laughs> I do like owls. Owls are, owls are <laughs> quite good. Yes, I don't well, want to like turn, turn women into owls. Which you is don't? I, really? I we should go back do. and listen to that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, all right. You, so you're saying, and you guys do this a lot, and I want to get a little bit more specific with you. The sociopaths that you guys have encountered in the past, we're dealing, we're talking about Elizabeth, who is clearly seeing that the sketch looks just like the guy that she's going to marry. Yep. And drives the same car. What did you encounter that was similar? Okay, well, here's the thing I think with sociopaths is that I'm sure to her, Teddy Boy was probably a good partner. He probably seemed quite empathetic. He was super charming, really handsome, well-liked by people around him. Like, it's hard for you to, like, see past what you want to see in somebody and accept that they're this other way. Like I found myself like going into that kind of hole with somebody where it's like, you're not really thinking of all the terrible things that they're doing. And you're only focusing on this facade of what they're putting Putting themselves out to be. So I see a little bit of that in things. I've just dated full on narcissists. A couple actors. Don't judge me. Don't don't stop listening. I dated some actors. It hurts me. (laughs) But I did. And they're, they're selfish. Yeah, but there's, I mean, but narcissists and sociopath are totally different. But like every sociopath is narcissistic. Yes. They're not mutually exclusive, but most uh, most sociopaths like a, aren't Like a rectangle is a, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Pa- they're pa- parallelograms. 
both. Yes. All right. Well, oh my God, this is not geometry. <laughs> well, Bundy's luck would start to change Yikes. in August of 1975. I took calculus in ninth grade, by the way. I'm not you dumb. Plus me equals us. No, my calculus. Calculus. All right, go ahead. On August 16th, 1975, <laughs> Bundy was arrested by a Utah Highway Patrol officer after the officer observed Bundy cruising a residential area in the pre-dawn hours. Bundy fled the area at high speed after seeing the patrol car. But the high-speed chases never end well. Uh, so, of course, the officer cuffs him, searches the car. When he does, he notices that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. Hmm. It's because he's pulling people into his car, and he just needs like and an, putting them down where nobody can see him. Just needs an empty space. It's insane. And what else does he have? He finds a ski mask, no. a second mask Ooh. fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, oh an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained calmly that the ski mask was for skiing. He, he had, was a skier. He had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and you. the rest were common household items. But when you add all those you items put them together, together, there's a problem. An ice pick is not a common household item. Yeah, what I do you need care. an ice pick for? I mean, I guess getting ice out of your gutter, or it's for, I guess, originally, I don't know, what do people actually use an ice pick for? And you use an ice pick to break up a big... Thing of uh, ice in your gutters thing or of something. Ice. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, all right. Back before you had Tell your, us before electricity yes. what they needed this for. Before you before had Benjamin your Benjamin little... Franklin. Yeah. Actually, you guys probably don't even... You probably just have your ice made for you by your super cool refrigerators. And I your, do. Or your millennial... Um, do uh, you not? No. I have the little, uh, you know, you pour them in an ice tray and then you crack that's it open I and have. that's it. So oh. <laughs> before that little ice tray, you used to just have ice in a big a block. block of ice. And then you'd have to use an ice pick. And then, oh, oh. did anyone else was, know that's what an ice pick was? Wait, for? did you just buy a chunk of ice? Yeah, you bought a chunk of ice and you brought it home, and then you just chilled. You Where'd know, you put the ice? In the, in the freezer. In the freezer, yeah. And then somebody said, "Would you, you know break what? it in this? the freezer?" No, you think you took it out? That seems and you're so stabbing messy. it. Like, yeah, there has got to be a better way. And then in the Godfather, Luca Brazzi is stabbed with the ice pick in his um, in his hand, and then strangled mm. by Salazzo. Anyways, so <laughs> thank care. you for the explanation of the archaic tool that is the ice pick. Mm. But this detective, well, one of the detectives learned of these strange items that this man had, the strange man prowling this neighborhood in this strange car. And when he was briefed on the circumstances of this guy being pulled over, he recalled a similar suspect in car description from the November attempted Carol DeRange kidnapping. Not to mention, now that all this was coming together for him, he recalled that this man, Ted Bundy, who had all of these, you know, excuses for everything found in his car, was also the name of the man Elizabeth Cloffer was dating, was suspicious of, and had called about. Mm. So he's the first person who's really like... Putting the pieces together. Yes. Like, this man matches the description of the attempted kidnapping that was botched, matches the man who this concerned woman called about saying her boyfriend matches a sketch, and like, now he's got these suspicious items in his car, his front seat's removed. It's very interesting. Not only that, he then is in police custody after this bizarre occurrence in this neighborhood and they did a search of Bundy's apartment and found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play which is 
the school in which 17-year-old Deborah Kent had disappeared from. So he like kept this little memento and it ended up... The whole thing is like an X marks the spot on there. Like, dummy. I'm an idiot. Dummy. So for some, I don't know what reason, the police didn't have sufficient evidence to detain Bundy and he was released. He later said that searchers missed a collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims and he destroyed the photographs after he was released. But again, I think I remember reading that this was one of those things obviously nobody ever found. So it might have been a lie. Right. And, you know, we got to empathize with the police here. It's like they didn't have enough evidence in this case. Maybe they didn't get a call back from the other cops when they tried to find out what they knew. It's just like a very disjointed investigation. So Mm -hmm. we have to give some slack to the investigators in this case. Right. And this is very similar. We have to remember to call upon a, a case we've covered before. Do you remember the Travis Forbes case? Yeah. Where it's like they knew they had their guy, but they didn't have the evidence. Right. And they put him under surveillance, which is what they ended up doing here. Yes. So Salt Lake City had him under 24-hour surveillance, and two detectives from Utah flew to interview Bundy's girlfriend, Elizabeth. She ended up telling him that in the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she, quote-unquote, couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. They included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted to stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Other objects were surgical gloves, an oriental knife, and a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack of women's clothing. So the plaster of Paris, obviously, is for his fake casts, right? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. But again, like, like, like she has a stuff. That, you know, <laughs> yeah. Would that be a red flag if you if you had found a, a boyfriend of... that had all this stuff? Well, yeah. The only other thing you do, the only other thing you do with plaster of Paris is make a mold of your dick. No, I don't think that's the same thing. <laughs> no, no, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of um... plaster caster, Cynthia plaster caster. No, 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 no. It's like you. Put it around the balloon. But plaster of Paris is what you use. Is that use. what it is? Is yeah. that the same plaster thing? Plaster of Paris is, uh, or papier mache. Papier, papier mache <laughs> is what they do in Seinfeld when George breaks yeah. up with a pretentious girl because she calls it papier mache. Yes. <laughs> is that it? Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, yeah, Paper mache. Papier mache. No, but, 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 but plaster of Paris is what Cynthia Plastercaster used, and she would take, she would she would sleep with all the rock stars and then, um, then do that. She did decks? Jimi Hendrix and everything. Oh, so you can do it of your deck. Wait, Plaster of Paris is more like a ceramic. Sort of, yeah. Like, look, people are doing They do it with flour. Teeth molds. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that is like, that's hard. It depends on how you do it. Solid, hard. Yeah, it is. Oh, I guess you can do casts. Okay, yeah, you can do casts. That's That's the way they they used to do casts before Mm -hmm. they... Did the, did the rolly. Thing. Yeah. Right. Oh. So Elizabeth also mentioned that Bundy was perpetually in debt. And she said that she suspected he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, if you tell anyone, I'll break your f***ing neck. And again, that's this a is, red flag for me. This Threat, is a, this another of my life. This is another interesting thing is that the, the stealing part, because we saw this with mm-hmm. D'Angelo. D'Angelo loved to steal stuff. And it was stuff that petty. It was petty stuff. It was a lot of clock radios and, and weird things. Lamps. Dishes. Yeah. yeah. Lamps. It's like household goods yeah. or things of uh, like sexual arousal. Like it'd be like one earring or a driver's license or yeah, a class he would, ring. He would take trophies. Things were, with yeah. things, things of, with engraved. Yeah. He loved stuff that had, it, you like know, personalization. Yes, yeah. That, well, he loved, for example, like taking one earring because then you had the other, especially if it's expensive. So you're like connected. And then you think about it every time you see it. Or a license. It's like you're going to the DMV to replace your license and that entire time it's like he's in your head. He took things that stuck with you. Right. Yeah. 
and the, the stuff that Bundy was stealing, and just a, just just this idea that he was just taking stuff. You know, it matches up to you know when I went back in and when when I was learning things about D'Angelo, I was remembering Bundy stuff, and I was just like, it was always weird that this guy who seemingly had a lot of stuff, or, or at least you know, had everything going for him was stealing things. It just wasn't. Well, he was yeah, a master of appearances. Yeah. Like he yeah. was from this not great background, but you wouldn't know that by the way he by those turtlenecks and by the way he presented himself. Mm-hmm. So she also explained that Bundy had became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. Listen, this was the style of the day, the long part. Yeah, it wasn't like thing. that. Um, you know, son, son of Sam also, the long brown haired girls. That was what he was supposedly going after. But this is what a lot of women had at the time. She would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. Oh, my God. Not ideal. No. Is that a red flag? Yeah, I would. That would have never happened to me. I'm such a light sleeper. Examining my body, I'd be like, unless like this is foreplay, I'm not interested. Yeah, <laughs> unless this is like your thing, I can like kind of get behind it. No, but I, it strikes me that like it's in a possessive nature. It's like, what's have you done anything? What's different? Cheating is it suspicions that he was having, likely, or he's just or just like, hey, your foot looks dead. I'm gonna stare at it for a while because that's my thing. <laughs> this turns me on. Yeah. So he kept a lug wrench, which was taped halfway up the handle, in the trunk of her car, which is another Volkswagen Beetle. Jesus. uh, Which he often borrowed, quote, for protection. And the detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with her on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished. So they were just, they, they were starting to build a case. They were matching up times, dates, locations. Elizabeth was then interviewed again by the Seattle police, and in that interview is when she learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks and her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas 1973. So not only is her guy that she was going to marry a potential serial killer, but he was also screwing around on her. And while this deep reconnaissance of Bundy was happening, the police learned that he had sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a teenager. So upon learning that, the Utah police impounded it immediately, and the FBI dismantled and searched it at length. They found hairs matching samples obtained from one of his victims. And an FBI specialist concluded that the presence of hair strands in his one car matched three different victims who he would never have met and would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. You know, the fictional representations of serial killers uh, vary in many ways, but there's one that struck me. It was uh, uh, in an old graphic novel featuring the, the, the character of John Constantine, who Keanu Reeves portrayed in the film. Constantine comes across a serial killer. He knows to be a serial killer. He's been stalking the serial killer to kill him. But instead of killing him, he catches him in his car with his weapon of choice. And uh, he told the serial killer that the act of killing isn't the thing that makes you important. Dying is what makes one important. That moment of death, everything in the world is about you at that moment. You are the center of the universe at your moment of death. And I think there is some truth to that, despite the the fact that it was crafted for a work of fiction. And I think that may be the thing they're longing to be important. So they put Bundy into a lineup. They call in Carol Duranch, who was the woman that was in Walden Books that he said, uh, somebody just broke into your car, get into my car. 
and really what I think is the hero of the story. She immediately identifies him as Officer Roseland, who was the one that uh, the moniker that he used. And in the same lineup, witnesses from Deborah Kent's high school picked him as the stranger who lurked about in the high school auditorium during the play. Unfortunately, they never found Deborah's body, so they didn't have the evidence they needed to charge him with her abduction or murder. But they had enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durant case. So, all right, we're, we're good. But guess what happens? His parents bail him out. They pay his $15,000 bail. That's it. This is a guy that <laughs> they're But what thinking, was $15,000 back then? I don't know. It's, it's not million. enough. And I wonder, was it his parents or his grandparents who bailed him out? Yeah, which yeah. parents? The fake parents but or I'm the real parents? I'm saying 15000 was probably more like fifty. It was probably a little bit more than that, but still, why the hell does he have any bail at all yeah. when, when, it's, when you're thinking that this guy has killed all these other people? Because he's too. so charismatic that his parents are like, this must be a mistake. No, but even... No, for the police. No, for the police. Why they why they put this bail on him? It's not up to the it's police. It's so low. It's up to the DA. Yeah, and no one was murdered. It's an it's an a, a, attempted kidnapping. kidnapping, and women, no well, one gave a shit. Women well, didn't. It was even an care. aggravated kidnapping. That wasn't attempted. Women could barely vote at I'm that saying, time. The statute of limitation was three years on rape, yeah. so they didn't care. She was like, "She's fine. She's alive. Who cares?" <laughs> so when he was out on bail, he spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle, living with Elizabeth in Elizabeth's house. So what's going on with Elizabeth at this time? Now that she knows about Stephanie Brooks, Boy. and she's she's the one that has narked on him and said that this is probably a guy. And I hate to use the narc in a in a bad way because she did the exact thing and the thing that everybody should do, which is if you think a guy's a serial killer or a killer at any time, say something. Say something. Well, that's the thing. Now her concerns have been substantiated by his arrest mm-hmm. she finds out about stephanie brooks which is probably devastating yeah and then he's out on bail and staying with you i don't know i don't know what i think of, i mean i'm not going to cast any judgment because i can't imagine the situation she's yeah you in. don't know but boy but, but that is very interesting she's unwavering really well it's just interesting well she is wavering because it's she like, is she yeah. calls and reports him multiple times but then, you know, she's probably waffling back and forth between like... There's a lot of internal struggle there, obviously oh, yeah. happening. And I also mean, fear, like, fear. she's got to be scared. But then also, you know, it might be like one of those abusive relationship things where she's scared to leave, too, you know? Well, like, he did threaten to break her neck if yeah. she said anything about his stolen shit. Yeah. No, he's t- t- insane. All right. So let's talk about the other police jurisdictions and how they were dealing with all of this. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but they kept him under close surveillance. And Elizabeth later wrote that when Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, so many unmarked police cars started up, it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. And all this compounding evidence pointing to Ted Bundy prompted the principal detectives from Utah, Washington, and Colorado to meet in Aspen to exchange information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. So, like, everything is finally coming together. And while officials left the meeting, later known as the Aspen Summit, convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought out, they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. That has to be the most frustrating feeling. Ever. Oh, totally. But I will say, as far as the teamwork the law enforcement are exhibiting here, it's really incredible given that this is 76. Oh, yeah. Because the climate within law enforcement, it was very competitive. It was competitive. Communication was poor. And they essentially established this working group to kind of combat this this murderer. Right. And it's it's like the first of its kind. 
I mean, I haven't seen anything as far as teamwork goes with multi-jurisdictional law enforcement agencies. I haven't heard of anything this early. So it's really incredible. But so they have this meeting, the Aspen Summit, and then we get to February of 76, which is when Bundy actually was going to stand trial for the Carol DeRange kidnapping. And on the advice of his attorney, Bundy waived his right to a jury trial due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. So after a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, he was found guilty of kidnapping and assault. He was then sentenced to serve a minimum of one year and a maximum to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. All right, so Bundy is sent to prison for 15 years. And interestingly, this is when Carol Boone pops up into his life. So she starts writing him. Well, remind everyone who Carol Boone is. Yeah. Because there's lots of women in Bundy's life, obviously. Yeah, unless. So Carol is the one who worked with him at the Washington Department of Emergency Services. And they just had a friendship. And it seems really insignificant. Yeah. And no one really, when they're studying Bundy, you wouldn't anticipate that this woman would end up coming back around. You know, but... You'd think she would have backed out slowly. Yeah. But it's like they were friends. And then when he is incarcerated in Florida, she starts poking around interested in developing this relationship yeah. with Bundy. They start, she starts writing him uh, these elaborate love letters and these detailing endless promises and deep professions of love to each other. It's so weird. Bizarre. The world. timing, like you know, she's one of those f- up people that like, yeah. 
Bundy was a, a new phenomenon at the time because he was charismatic and articulate and handsome, which made him incredibly effective as a serial killer because he didn't have to work terribly hard to gain access to his victims. And he used those attributes. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. He used those attributes in an evil fashion. And uh, I think that there are some people that are drawn to that charisma, that are drawn to that sensibility. And, uh, you know, th th there's always that, uh, that old chestnut of the bad boy. Well, how much badder can you get than being a serial killer? Being a fan of a serial killer seems to me less about the serial killer and more about trying to find some meaning in one's own life. So my view of fans of serial killers is very dim, obviously, but it's, it, I, I think it's, it's part of the emptiness that, that, that creeps into our society because we put so much attention on fame and celebrity that we're looking to find a connection to that fame and celebrity any way we can. And uh, it goes back to uh, uh, what Oppenheimer once said, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean that you should. You can't get badder than a serial killer. No. So people who are attracted to that, who want to fix, who want to help, who mm -hmm. want to get to the bottom of why somebody Saving is, somebody you want yet. to heal those on that side of the spectrum who are desperate to do that, gravitate towards addicts, people like this. Like yeah. when you really are desperate to be like a caretaker, to be like a healer for someone, this is who they, they go towards. Right. And also, uh, you see this a lot with people that want to date prisoners they're incarcerated and so you know that they're not out they're not cheating around. they're not cheating with women that has got to that sad that time. is sad that you, if you have to date somebody in prison because you don't want them to cheat if that's the reasoning unless you watch escape also the they'll morning. just cheat anyway they'll write to someone else and yeah. they'll give blowjobs to male cheat. prisoners they'll figure it out they, yeah if they'll, guy get, they'll get cheat, Polaroids from other pr women from the outside. They'll cheat. They'll find a way. Easy. So Bundy's being sent to prison. So this is great. His reign of terror should end. However, it doesn't. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard and carrying a quote-unquote escape kit, which included roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card. And because of that, he spent several weeks in solitary confinement, as he should. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with victim Karen Campbell's murder. He eventually waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen to face these charges. So he's transferred 40 miles to Aspen for a prelim hearing, and he wants to serve as his own attorney. So when you're serving as your own attorney, you're not, you, you can't wear cuffs or shackles or anything like that. So the judge said, all right, no cuffs, no shackles. He goes to a research, uh, recess and he's like, I got to go to the law library and to research this case or research other cases to, to help me. And he's concealed behind a bookcase and opens a window, jumps out of the window. It's a second story, sprains his ankle as, as he lands, but he escapes. So he leaves the courthouse. He strips his outer layer of clothing and walks through Aspen as these roadblocks are being set up on the outskirts. And he hikes southward onto the Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin, stole food, uh, clothing, and a rifle. And the following day, he leaves the cabin and he continues south toward the town of Crested Butte. But he becomes lost in the forest, Beavis. And then for two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain before he broke into a camping trailer, taking food and a ski parka. But instead of continuing southward, he walked back 
north towards Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he steals a car, and at this point, he's cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from a sprained ankle. He ends up driving back in Aspen, where two police officers notice his car weaving in and out of its lane and finally ended up pulling him over. So at this point, he'd been a fugitive for six days. And in the car, there were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Karen Campbell's body. Which he had because as his own attorney, Bundy had rights of discovery. Oh, yeah. right. That's why he had that map. That's why he had the map. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah. that indicated that that this wasn't that he was planning it, that this wasn't spontaneous because he was using those maps that, that he, he got from discovery him. for um, to this get reason. away. Yeah. At this point, Bundy's back in jail, and he completely ignored advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. Instead, he assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the jail in a hacksaw that he got from other inmates. He then accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in over a six-month period. He later said visitors brought him this money, primarily Carol Ann Boone, this woman who's in love with him, who worked with him at the Washington Department of Emergency Services. The mind boggles. So during the evenings while other prisoners are showering, he saws a hole about one, one foot square between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell ceiling. And he starts losing weight. So he loses 35 pounds and he's able to wriggle through this hole into the crawl space above. And he starts making all of these practice runs, which you see a lot if you haven't watched uh, Escape at Danamora. You see these guys. This is kind of similar to what they're doing. They're making these practice runs. They're going through it, exploring the space, trying to figure out because his he realized he screwed up the first time because it was very much a crime of opportunity. He jumped out the window. He had no plan. Now he's going to have a plan. He's got this money stockpiled. He's going to do this right. And multiple reports from an informant, uh, you know, said that there was movement during the ceiling during the night, but nobody investigates it. So somebody's saying like, hey, there's something going on. Nobody does anything, you know. So by late '77, Bundy's impending trial become a media spectacle in Aspen, and he. He files a motion for a change of venue to Denver. So his request was granted, but he was not going to be tried in Denver, rather granted the Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He was getting out. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, and changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet and walked out the door to freedom. This seemed way too easy. And after stealing a car, he drove east, but the car soon broke down in the mountains, and a passing motorist gave him a ride into Vail. He then caught a bus to Denver, where he was boarding a morning flight to Chicago and they didn't discover that he had escaped until noon on December 31st which is more than 17 hours later that is insane what nobody checked on him at all you know there's really no excuse uh and I think the worst part about this is that more people died yeah while he was out yeah I don't know this is really bad considering he's like an escape artist like he should be in a metal cell yeah um, he should be in solitary. Like, yeah, like. with no shared wall. Like, he should be in some really confining situation, and it doesn't seem like he was. There and just should not be anything that a human body can get out of. No, it's really sad. In a jail cell. It's really sad. This probably could have been prevented. But mm-hmm. this is never any one person's fault. Like, it's a it's a group effort. 
a group effort of failure. <laughs> a group effort. So we left Bundy. He's in Chicago after hopping that flight from Denver. He then went to Michigan, moved to Atlanta, and ended up in Tallahassee, Florida, where he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at a boarding house near the Florida State University campus. And there is a tidbit about why Bundy ended up in Florida. Jack. Right. So he had ended up calling, I don't know if it was his current lawyer, but it was his past lawyer, Mm -hmm. I believe. And he asked him, what state am I most likely to get the death penalty in? And the lawyer said, Florida. He hung up the phone and booked it to Florida. So does that, I mean, does that say to you guys, like, he wants to be stopped? Or is he just really trying to play, like, the hardest game possible just because he can? Or he's like, I love, like, the challenge of, I don't know. What does that say to you? You know... It's so you can't strange. try to make logic out of madness, no, you which can't. is what we're trying to do. You can't, because when you think about – this is the thing that always struck me as Bundy on top of the fact that he was a good-looking guy who was educated that, that could have gone another route. The fact that he gets away with it and then goes straight to you know, another kill spree. Mm-hmm. When asked about his plans for Florida, he said that once he got there, his initial plan – was to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity. Knowing, Is that like when he was like really trying to I'm not going to kill his, this woman. I'm just going to rape, rape her. her. Yeah, he's not possible. He's a lust killer. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like this is beyond his control. It's He's insatiable in yeah. that way. This was his plan, though. He's going to refrain from criminal activity. He was wanting to get a job and he didn't want to attract the attention of police. But the lone job opportunity he was presented with... He put an application at a construction site, but then abandoned the whole situation when they asked for ID. So at that point, he didn't have any money. He was forced and probably got pleasure out of reverting back to his criminal behavior, which is stealing and taking people's purses and stealing credit cards and shit like that. So one week after he arrives in Tallahassee, he goes along the Florida State University's Greek area and probably is checking a bunch of doors finds a rear door that has a faulty locking mechanism on the Chi Omega house, sorority house. And beginning at 2.45 a.m., he bludgeons 21-year-old Margaret Bowman with a piece of oak firewood as she slept. And again, he didn't bring his own tools. He picked up something along the way. He then enters the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beats her unconscious, strangles her, tore off one of her nipples uh, almost... Actually, I think it was... It was attached by like a, a, a small, oh, okay. small piece of that's, skin. That's, I'm sorry. Enough. that's fine. Oh, that's an, well, always better than if it was. Okay. No, I mean, when you have a nipple, it's like you imagine it. Yeah. And I know you have a nipple, but it's not the same. <laughs> I just don't need to know anything in that much of a detail. He bit her deeply into her left buttock, and that's important. And we'll get to that um, a little bit later on. And he sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In the adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathleen Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder. And then Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. So the Tallahassee detectives later figured out that these four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, which is mind-blowing. No, he's like a shark with chum dumped around it. Literally. He's in this frenzy where it's like he's so pent up and he's probably been trying to live under the radar. And, and you trying know, to curve his, his... And then he's just like, F- yeah. And just went on a tear. Can't stop. And also, this was all done within an earshot of more than 30 witnesses who didn't hear a thing. So I don't know how he's possibly wreaking so much carnage you're, and then not... such 
you're at such a huge advantage when you attack a sleeping victim because you know he just hits him in the back of the head and they're, they're disoriented and he can even do- if they wake up if you're like a heavy sleeper it takes you a while to even realize what the hell is happening well, imagine okay i imagine i'm getting hit asleep and you make like ah uh, like a sound it sounds like someone yawning in the middle like of the a night moan or something yeah. right or like stubbing their toe on the way to the bathroom you're not going to hear the prolonged screams that you would if a person saw their attacker coming or whatever. Right. So these people are disoriented and he's just going one after another where these girls and they're like 18 don't even have a chance to react or respond or try to escape. It's so sick. It's so sick. So after he left the sorority house, he ended up breaking into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked FSU student Cheryl Thomas, ended up dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull into five different places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended up ending her dance career. And on her bed, police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask, in quotes, containing two hairs that were similar to Bundy's. And after this, I mean, this attack got huge media attention. This is when he was on the move again. And this time he moved to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van, which is bold. Like you steal a university van after doing something like that at the university. So this is where he approaches a 14-year-old named Leslie Parmenter, the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives, identifying himself as Richard Burton, fire department. But as he's talking to this little girl, the little girl's brother comes up and confronts him. It's just like, what are you talking about? My dad's the chief. Like, you're a fire department dude. Tell me more. You know, like, yeah. it, it's it's not good. So he then drives to Lake City, Florida, and he finds himself at a junior high school. And he encounters 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach. 12. And she had been summoned to the school's main office to pick up uh, a purse that she had forgotten, and she never got back to class. Weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed 35 miles away. Oh, my God. Twelve. Jesus Christ. At this point in time, Bundy's desperate. He's out of cash. He's unable to pay for room and board anywhere, so he's kind of stuck. So he ends up stealing another car and fled westward across the Florida panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by a Pensacola police officer near the Alabama state line after a wants and warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. He stole another Beetle. <laughs> like, he loves the Volkswagen Beetle. God. When he was told he was under arrest, he kicked the officer's legs out from under him and took off running. He, like, cannot be stopped. Nothing's stopping this dude. Well, he does get stopped. Well, I know, but <laughs> it took a while. He should have been stopped a lot no, earlier. This officer is, like, has no idea. He's like, what is this asshole? Has no idea it's Ted Who Bundy. he is, yeah. And it's just, like takes him down which is incredible the officer ended up firing a warning shot followed by a second round and he ended up chasing him and tackling him the two struggled over the gun before the officer ended up subduing and arresting bundy so in the stolen vehicle there are three sets of ids belonging to female fsu students 21 stolen credit cards and a stolen television set there are also a pair of dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses, a pair of plaid slacks, later identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton Fire Department in Jacksonville, which we just had talked about. And as the officer transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had really arrested Ted Bundy, he heard him say, I wish you had killed me. Right. Because now he's embarrassed because he got caught. Yep. So now Bundy is finally in custody, and this is the point where he's actually going to have to stand trial for some of these heinous murders he's committed. Because by now, 
after his escape, I mean, everyone's kind of gotten on the same page. They knew he was in Florida, and then he commits these additional heinous murders. I mean, he he's under lock and key now. They're not going to make any of the same mistakes again. Basically, what happens is he goes on trial, and the trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States ever. And he was standing trial for the Chai Omega homicides that occurred in Florida first. And despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense, which was a terrible idea. And from the beginning, he essentially sabotaged his entire defense out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion, according to one of his former attorneys. He also wrote, this is a former attorney who wrote this, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him, apparently, was that he be in charge. So again, this is my whole thing where he is narcissistic beyond his sense of self-preservation. Yeah. yeah. So eventually, there is a pretrial plea bargain it was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, and Leach in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. And prosecutors were amenable to the deal by one account because the prospects of losing at trial were very good, which sounds insane. sounds insane now, but they just didn't have the a same lot of the physical lo- evidence and yeah. like, stuff that we've got right now. It wasn't now. DNA. It's a sure thing. Yeah. Like, they didn't really have that. Yeah. But Bundy saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost or for witnesses to die, move on, retract their testimony, anything. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and then secure an acquittal. This is what he's thinking. So he's he's thinking this is a way out. At the last minute, however, he refuses the deal. He says Minerva, who I think was his... One of his defense defense attorneys. attorneys Mm -hmm. Made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. He just couldn't do it. (laughs) Nope. Narcissism over all of this. Jesus. Okay. So during the trial, two Chai Omega sorority members placed Bundy in the vicinity of the Chai Omega house that evening and saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the oak murder weapon. And other physical evidence included the impressions of his bite wounds on Lisa Levy's left buttock, which uh, Billy had talked about before. And they ended up matching his teeth to the castings of his. So the jury deliberated for less than seven hours and ended up convicting him on July 24th, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults of Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. The trial judge, Edward Cower, imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. I'm not asking for mercy, for I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act, but I will not share the burden for the guilt. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but... You want another way, partner. 
And then six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. And he was found guilty once again because mostly from a testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading her from the schoolyard to the stolen van. During the penalty phase of this trial, Bundy took advantage of this very obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. He was actually questioning this former colleague of his turned friend, Carol Ann Boone, on the stand because she was visiting him in jail and they had this relationship while he was in custody and they had this, she was a a defense witness and a prosecution witness. And he was questioning her and in a very strange turn of events, he asked her to marry him on the stand. She accepted, and Bundy then declared to the court that they were legally married. Carol, do you want to marry me? Yes. And I want to marry you? Yes. And I do want to marry you. Okay, so that's it. Now they're married. <laughs> that's how much effort he has to put in. Not You didn't get down on a knee or get a ring. No. The just proposal like, and the wedding happened like, in... So you want to marry me? Me too? He had a little chuckle. He's yeah. Like, now we're married. Now we're married. Uh, from from proposal to marriage was like four seconds. Yeah. It was, I'm underwhelmed and she deserves better. I mean, sort yeah, of. that's... Yeah. I don't know what to say. That's me what neither. you guys are upset about? What? The- I mean, I'm upset about a lot of things, but I am underwhelmed. Like, this is what men don't think they have to try hard anymore. And this is why. <laughs> this is an overlying problem with all men that they think that they can get away with this bullshit. Yeah. Like, propose with some romantic, like, hemp ring or something. <laughs> he didn't even have a ring. Look at his face. Oh, they didn't have a ring. No, it's disgusting. Like, at least, like, you know, go along with it. He should have at least made a ring out of, like, some floss or something. Dick. I completely agree. Whatever. Let's talk about why he's doing this in the first place. Right. So is it because maybe she has something on him and if they're married, she won't have to testify? Or is it because he likes to make a f***ing spectacle? It's probably a little bit of both. And he wants to have someone, he probably feels like, I'm probably going to get convicted. Like, maybe this is his version of a romantic gesture to her. And he's like winning her support and adoration he's like thinking ahead like i'm gonna need someone to put money in my commissary i'm gonna need someone to do this and that i think he's selfishly planning ahead well none of this is done for her in any sense like everything is is thought out in a way where it's going to help him in the long run whatever that may be if he does think she's going to give him money or whatever now showman so now that they're married the prosecution also can't interview her, correct? You or can. No? That's the thing. You can voluntarily agree to testify against your husband. You can't be forced. Got it. But if you want to, you can. But she but if won't. you don't want to, you don't have. You, you don't. They can't subpoena you and compel you to. Right. But if she wanted to, she could. You know. But perhaps. I think she wanted to marry him anyway. I mean, she was following him across the country. Oh, yeah. She wanted to be with him since before he was a criminal. Yeah. So she was just under his spell completely. Best day of her life. Right. All right. So in February of 1980, Bundy is sentenced for a third time to death by execution. As the sentence is announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, tell the jury they were wrong. Oh, my God. In October of 82, Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. Now, while conjugal visits were not allowed at Rayford Prison, 
Inmates were known to pool their money in order to bribe guards to allow them intimate time alone with their female visitors. I was going to wonder how that happened. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there are a lot of storied situations that you hear about that where it's like they had sex behind a vending machine. They bribed someone. She passed. He passed right. him into her secretly. Like who? Ugh. No, that's that's exactly what what happened. So he's on death row. But this is when the long appeals process starts and everything's got to be dug back up again because this is a guy like a narcissist would do. He just wants to keep everything going as long as possible. We're going to hear a lot about what goes on in this guy's life because he's trying to push everything. As much as he wanted to die, he still wanted to keep stuff going. Did he want to die? Well, it's conflicting because it seems like it when he asked the attorney for which state will put me to death. Yeah, but I still don't think that that's direct. Well, you know, know, Tony says it best. He just did not think they would ever do it yeah he thought that he had so much charisma that he could offer up tidbits of like what about this murder what about this 12 year old i killed don't you want to know where they're buried and just string them along right for decades well, it's like he's yeah he's playing that game and he's almost like daring them you know and yeah. he thinks he's smarter than them and that was the he whole thing just thought he would win this chess match and he was wrong Thank so God. so that's what we're going to get into next time for part three I know you guys don't like the multi-parters, but this one is worth worthy. It. It's worth it. And, and I got to tell you, it is the most fascinating execution. And you've heard Tony weaved out throughout these first two episodes, but this is where he truly shines. And that is the most incredible, incredible story he has from within that execution chamber. Yeah. This is not just a guy saying, oh, I went to an execution, so a guy got killed. It's not that. There's a lot more to it. So we're going to pick up next week. As for now, please follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. If you guys are connected one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us hello at the first degree podcast.com or just the first degree podcast.com. There's a submissions page or DM any of us. Alexis will be checking them neurotically per usual. Don't DM us your theories on how we interact with each other. <laughs> well, I can tell you your theories are wrong if you think Jack Vanek and Billy Jensen are in love. So that's something you were very wrong about. Yeah, I don't believe that's what they said. I that's guess what they, it is. No, they said Jack is picking on me because she's, she's in, love in love with, with me. You. <laughs> don't say anything about I'm me not... being in love with Jack. Oh, rude. Number one, I'm not like a nine-year-old schoolboy. Although you do say that's your This is how I flirt. <laughs> this is how I flirt. You should see me flirt with the guy that I'm dating. All I do is make fun of him. He okay. loves it. Hey, Jared Monica. <laughs> All right. So until next week, please listen next week. I know these three products are hard but, this, but next week's the best one and it's it's being it's really being led by our first degree connection because his story is so strong and it's going to be awesome so until then keep your friends close but not that close bye happy escape day over and out bye bye thank you for tuning in to the first degree check out new episodes every wednesday at podcast one.com the podcast one app and apple podcasts This episode quotes extensively from Dr. No's Guide to Serial Killers, the best of the worst, all things interesting, and sources like The Crime Mag, Psychology Today, and Thought Catalog.